You're listening to Solar Insiders, the fortnightly podcast that shines the light on the world's biggest energy source. Solar Insiders is presented by Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy, and Sophie Voroth, the editor of One Step Off the Grid. Solar Insiders is brought to you by Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. And Nextracker, delivering the most advanced solar tracking technology and the highest performing solar assets in the country. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Solar Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and the EV focused at Driven and I'm joined as I am every episode these days with Sophie Farrath, the editor of One Step Off the Grid. Sophie, how are you? I'm very well, Giles. How are you? Look, just um, absolutely um, spiffing, spiffing, I think. <laughs> spiffing. Splendid. <laughs> I'm not too sure. I'm not too sure where that language came from, but um, probably from a dark, deepest dark past. But um, look, we're going electrification for a slight change of pace um, this week. Um, you've been doing an interview, as you are doing every episode for the Solar Insiders podcast. Mm. Who have you been speaking to and why? Uh, well, this week I spoke to Ty Christopher, who is a, a veteran of the um, New South Wales electricity distribution industry, um, but sort of had his start as a as a he's an engineer, trained engineer, and a ticketed electrician, so he knows his stuff in that department. And yeah, I just wanted to chat to him. He's currently. Um, uh, at the University of Wollongong for what he calls his uh, fourth quarter of, of, of professional life, um, you know, where he's sort of trying to give back some of the knowledge and help with some of the thorny issues of decarbonisation. And as we all know, there are many, many, many of those. Um, and, yeah, electrification is, you know, sort of one of them. So I just wanted to chat to him to demystify it a little bit, uh, ask about, you know, do you really need this? Do you really need that? Is it really expensive? Um, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, okay. Okay. Now, well, look, it's well-timed because um, we're about to launch a series next week. Um, it's almost like a sort of a, a subdomain of your new economy. It's focusing on electrification. It's going to be, um, well, I won't reveal the name just yet, but it's going to include about 20 different podcasts and a whole bunch of explainers and stories and advice about electrification. So this is a fantastic prompt into that and a bit of a taster for the, some of the things that we're going to be getting into because electrification, people say, is absolutely essential if we're going to get to next zero and yet at the same time it seems like an obvious thing to do but it's actually really hard for households um for the reasons we're about to find out from jai christopher and uh, your interview so let's have a listen to your interview with uh, jai christopher from the university of wollongong on solar insiders today we're speaking to ty christopher who is an honorary let me get this right professorial fellow <laughs> at the University of Wollongong, but uh, is, um, how can I say this, Ty, you've gone from kind of a cadet, engineer, electrician to very long career in, and senior executive in the electricity industry and now um, here you are at the University of Wollongong. Um, and we are going to talk about electrification. Um, so I would like to just discuss how difficult it is to electrify your home and try and demystify it a bit and bust a few myths perhaps. But first of all, um, 
you can perhaps expand on my probably very poor introduction <laughs> and tell me uh, tell me a bit about yourself and why you are ultra qualified to talk about this subject. Well, I'll leave I'll leave it to others to decide how ultra or non ultra qualified I might be. I am a thirty eight now year veteran of the electricity supply industry. Started out on the tools, as they say, way back in the the mid nineteen eighties. I've been through uh, working in the field, um, you know, the usual climbing poles and digging holes that you'd um, you'd have associated with the electricity supply industry, right the way through the um, engineering aspects. I did my um, degree part-time of an evening whilst working in the field and then in the office environment and worked my way through the energy supply industry. And it's fair to say I've seen all of the changes go from basically local government ownership through corporatisation, full retail contestability, spin-off of the retail arms into separate businesses, and then ultimately uh, privatisation in New South Wales yep. of the electricity industry and rode that journey through different organisations and different names through to spending 10 years on the executive of the company that's now Endeavour Energy. Right. And uh, while I never held the actual title, they tend to give you, you know, fancy corporate titles in practical sense. For the last five or so years of my time there, I was the chief engineer. Right. I then uh, then retired, um, got bored, unfortunately, and <laughs> now I'm back in off the bench for what I'll diplomatically call the fourth quarter of my working career, uh, working in energy futures with the University of Wollongong research coordination and really business development, building that bridge between the university and the private sector in particular to try to wrestle to the ground some of the thorny challenges we face in decarbonisation mm. and energy transformation. That's a very, very uh, tough fourth quarter that you've <laughs> assigned to yourself there. But uh, let me just say that I, for one, am grateful to have you on board because, yes, there are some very thorny issues. Um, one of the more... I would say, you know, it's a, it's a really optimistic subject, electrification, because it's one of these areas where we know we can get um, some pretty easy decarbonisation. Uh, we can get some uh, cost of living management into the bargain because it tends to be a cheaper way for people to get their electricity now or get their energy now. Um, but uh, while governments are sort of getting behind it now and we're talking about it a lot, on our websites, um, there is also a bit of talk about, well, it's not that easy, it's complicated, it's costly, um, it's not a like-for-like -like swap out, um, you know, and I've seen, um, there's a fabulous Facebook page called My Efficient Electric Home, which you might yes. know of, run by yes. Tim Corsi. Um, yeah, you see a lot of it on there where people will say, you know, I want to install a, let's say a uh, an electric hot water heat pump and my yes. my sparky mm. says nah, <laughs> yeah. nah. you don't need it stupid it's too expensive it'll be dead before it it earns money back that kind of thing and 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 similarly with uh with the induction cooktop so what i want to ask you is you know is this true is it so difficult um or are we kind of getting ourselves worked up over not much at all. And Sophie, like all of these sorts of questions, I think unfortunately for a lot of people, the answer is it depends. Right. I mean, on the, on the one side of things, Australia's really leading the world 
uh, on the uptake in particular of solar on our homes. The biggest power station that exists in the national grid at the moment is the combined effect of solar on the rooftops of all of our homes. That's a 20 gigawatt generator as we are sitting here today and another three gigawatts is being added to that each year in terms of capacity. Now, to put that in context for the, for the viewers at home, is the largest coal-fired power station in the country, Araring, which is going through the final phases of shutdown, decommissioning and that sorts of thing at the moment, is just under three gigawatts of capacity. So there's a huge amount of power being generated on our homes. And some of the discussion around electrification is, is I think, really around the fact that the older a person's home is, the bigger the issues they're going to face when it comes to retrofitting things. The reality is the it's the switchboard upgrade. It sort of starts there, the, yep. the interface point between the home and the grid, if you like. And this is where I'm sure that if there are people out there engaging electricians to say, well, and particularly if it's an and situation, an induction cooktop and a heat pump yep. and perhaps a large, a larger sized reverse cycle air conditioning for your heating and cooling loads in the home. If, if a person is wanting to do all of those things at once or simultaneously with a, a, a home that's in the you know, 40, 50, 60 year range, the reality is the electrical system in that home would, and this physical switchboard size even was never designed to cope with that sort of electrical yep. load. So there are going to be, unfortunately, substantial upgrade costs to do the retrofit. Um, in terms of the benefit of it, though, the other side of it is for greenfield situations, I think it's... Uh, an, Bear in mind, you're talking to an electrical engineer with a career in the power industry here. So yeah. for me, an all-electric home in a greenfield situation, especially with current technology, is uh, is the proverbial no-brainer. Yep. Um, my own home, I've I built myself 25 years ago. I've lived in it. It's been all electric for the entirety of that time, reverse cycle air conditioning, storage of peak hot water. It'll become a heat pump when the current one reaches end of age and fails to proceed as they say. Yep. Um, and as I say, my kids wouldn't even know that they grew up in an all-electric house. They, they don't think their life has been Amish or any different to any of their, <laughs> no horse any of their friends. <laughs> it's been zero change to, to lifestyle as a result. Yep. And by being focused in that one energy and one energy source arrangement, um, it's been very, very effective. One of the big things too, I think, if people are talking about their costs with electrification of their homes, um, the thermal efficiency of Australian homes in general, the, of the built environment, is is very very poor, yeah. and it, it's exceedingly difficult. Once once the jip rocks up, and it's mm. been up for fifty years, say, it's very difficult to improve the thermal efficiency of a home unless you're going through a full, you know, sort of a, a very expensive and extensive renovation. But even even ceiling insulation. Uh, making sure doors and windows are actually sealed, all of these sorts of things sound small, yeah. but they contribute very significantly to people being able to reduce their energy bills and their energy costs, and they make things like uh, getting your heating and cooling from the one source, say reverse cycle air conditioning as an example, with modern inverter-based technology, mm. Very, very cost effective if you can get the thermal efficiency of the of the box <laughs> that you're living in 
improved. But the, I, I don't have a, a silver bullet answer. Unfortunately, the, the bottom line is the newer your home, the cheaper it's going to be to go all electric. And the older your home, the, the more expensive that's going to be. And unfortunately, that applies to everything. It's mm. no different than a kitchen reno or a bathroom reno. Yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, that's the reality of, of, um, of real estate and home ownership in our country. Yeah, and I think this is why a lot of the advocates for electrification, like Sol Griffith, um, advocate, as you just said, with your own hot water system, you know, don't rush out. We're not saying rush out and replace everything with electric now. Um, wait till your whichever appliance comes to the end of its life and then and then replace it um, with an electric version. Um, but exactly. let's just, I mean, looking at some of the more persistent sort of, well, I don't know whether they're myths, but... Um, misunderstandings i i often see that people say that in order to have an induction stove you need to have three phase power and is um is that correct no no i mean you want a honking big one that that's a technical electrical term yep. for the viewers there <laughs> um you know the if the, you're gordon real... ramsay and you need yeah, a whole if, kitchen if you're gordon ramsay with you know with all the fun language and excitement that goes with it um <laughs> you know yes a 40 amp um induction heater well well that's that's you know right at the upper end of a single phase circuits right. um, capacity sure but the majority of induction cooktops are in the 20 to 30 amp range in terms of you know sorry to speak if pull me up if i lapse too far down the down the language sort of of the of the industry here but a 20 amp circuit is quite is quite straightforward um, it's no different than the dedicated power circuit that you would have for an oven dare i say for a reverse cycle air conditioner yep. or for a hot water service mm. so saying that oh you definitely need three phase to go all electric in your home um, that is a myth that's not the case at all um, if, if you have a very very large home and you're going to want to put in place a large amount of electrical load and, and even a large amount of solar generation, perhaps, yeah. then three-phase does make a lot of sense, right. yes. But it's not correct to say that it's that it's absolutely necessary or compulsory. No. And and just back to the, as you, you started talking, amps, um, what we hear too is that a lot of people really have no understanding at all of of what appliances in their house use the most power what mm. what you know what kind of you know like i think my understanding is the the kettle is one of them <laughs> oh yeah anything anything with an element yeah. anything that heats something up uh you know, especially with so many appliances nowadays with you know very modern and sophisticated great uh, power electronic controls and that sorts of thing but anything with a straight out heating element that just heats stuff up air or water or whatever yep that's that's going to use a lot of electricity right and so things like a kettle that, that uses a lot but not for a very long time yes what is it in your house that that is the biggest energy sink for most people are talking Again, electric that's right. Again, it depends. So yep. if your home is all electric, um, we, we start with that. If you've got a mix of gas, if you're using gas for heating, well, then your, your main electric loads are probably going to be oven, mm -hmm. if it's electric, uh, kettle, if it's electric, um, your clothes dryer right. will be a huge, uh, especially if you're in a climate where you, you're, you're using that, you know, rainy weather or for certain periods of the year. 
clothes dryers are, um, uh, from personal experience, truly horrendous right. in terms of <laughs> electricity use. I think, you know, again, I'm looking, uh, I, I walk past mine and sort of growl at it uh, in the laundry um, <laughs> on a frequent basis. And rest assured, when, it's, when it um, shuffles off this mortal coil as far as appliances go, um, it'll be getting replaced with a heat pump one that'll use a lot less energy right. so fast your head will spin. Um, so it's those sorts of appliances, uh, things like, you know, modern televisions or whatever, yes, they use energy, but they're pretty good overall. Yep. Um, dishwashers can be quite a substantial load, again, because they have a heating element in them. They heat their own water, dishwashers. Yep. So there's a, a substantial energy footprint associated with those. Um, and then it depends. In, in my own home's case, I've got off-peak storage hot water. So in total energy, not dollar bill because it's off-peak, but in terms of um, uh, energy use, that's around a third right. of the energy use of my home is hot water, um, which is why I've, I've put systems in place now to divert solar, my solar during the day into my hot water tank and right. use it as a thermal battery. Yep. Far more cost effective than buying a home battery battery, mm. I might add, if people are thinking in those lines. Um, using, if you have solar, using it when it's generating is the absolute best thing that you can do. Um, selling it back with current rates is, yeah. is a waste and storing it in a battery is not something that can make you feel very good but is frankly not a um, not an economically viable prospect in homes at the moment no. with battery prices being what they are. And and going to hot water, um, what's the case, uh, you know, of the your standard sort of storage tank with an element compared to the heat pump hot water? Um, w what are the arguments for and against either one? I mean, I know you can use both in that way as a sort of a, a solar battery. But uh, which is better, and and why? Well, the heat pump the heat pump is better, yeah. obviously, and the heat pump arrangement is better because you're using um, you're using basically heat from heat from the air. It's it's a, a reverse, or it's not reverse. It's all the same sort of thing. A closed loop refrigeration system mm -hmm. where you use the compression expansion of gas to either um, to extract or or, or um, inject heat is basically how it works. The losses in a heat pump system are mainly due to the fact you've got to have a motor to circulate everything around and, and to operate as the as a compressor. So that's what you'd say is the, the parasitic load of it. It, it. Look, it really depends on the size of your tank and, you know, amount of water that you're using. Yep. So the amount of, you know, top up in the tank you have to have each 24-hour cycle, say, in your home. But by and large, a, 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 um, a heat pump will use, you know, material tens of percentages less energy over the course of a 24-hour period or the course of a week than a standard heating element that's just heating the water up yep. like a like a like a honking big kettle yes. basically <laughs> and um and then hoping that it stays enough of it stays hot enough throughout for your usage throughout the course of the day yes so you know in the worst case you're talking maybe you know 10 percent 15 percent more efficient from a heat pump but they can be a, a great deal more than that uh, in terms of better efficiency, you know, even up to 30, 40% sort of thing, um, depending on your usage and how much you use the ambient climate where you are. Certainly, I, I know in my own case, when the 
element unit that I have in my own home reaches end of life. It's not economic to replace it before that, but when it does, a, a heat pump will definitely be the, um, the thing I'll be looking at to replace it. And how important is it when you put a heat pump in to take into account, you know, like I say, what aspect is on, on the house, um, what the climate is locally, um, and also, as you mentioned before, you know, how, how much water you use, how much hot water, you, whether you have teenagers, basically. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I'm, I'm only an electrical engineer, so I'm not going to solve the teenager problem no. for anyone, um, I've got on. to say, other than to, other than to um, note it as a, as a shared and lived experience yep. for many of us. Uh, in terms of citing uh, of all these things, the best thing you can do for, for any heat pump type piece of technology, whether it's a hot water system or whether it's even your air conditioning unit, is give it some space. Right. Let it have air circulating around it. One of the big uh, challenges that we see in the modern urban environment, and I'll talk here now greenfield rather mm-hmm. than, you know, sort of older places. There's actually an advantage in, in older places where you've got more room yeah. around the house is, you know, with zero alignment blocks or very narrow um, side passageways between a house, the fence, and then the next house, etc. It's it's tempting to plonk the air conditioning unit in that space out of sight, out of mind. But what you are doing in doing that is making the actual unit's life very difficult. Right. Because um, Certain it, parts depending have on to what work cycle really it is, it's, it's got to either get rid of heat Mm-hmm. If it's in a cooling cycle, or it's or it's got to get rid of coldness. Yep. <laughs> if it's in a you know if it's in a, um, a, a hot water yep. heat pump environment, and so the best thing that I'd say to anyone that you can do for yourself and for the um, energy efficiency op- or the efficient operation, I should say, of a heat pump or air conditioning unit is give it give it some room to breathe, yep. let it have enough air and room around it circulating for it to operate efficiently. That will actually allow the fans and the cooling units to cycle on and off, as opposed to if they're in an environment where they, they're struggling with the thermal differential they're trying to create. Um, you'll see fans and that sorts of thing just running yep. 100% of the time, and that's when you're using more energy. Right. And that's and that's when you, the life of your the machine will be cut short, and you might not. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You're wearing it out because you're, you're making its life harder. Yeah, I noticed that the Victorian government, um, through Solar Victoria, has just um, announced um, to the industry that it wants to lift the standards of, of heat pump installation. In that, you know, people have to now be much more careful about things like um you know the ambient atmosphere that 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 it's in the temperature it's set to um what kind of size they recommend for each household because i think they've you know they they're promoting this and they're saying we want you to do this and they the last thing they want is for people to feel like they're doing the right thing and then they get um you know ripped off or or it doesn't work out for them it it doesn't deliver to expectations and i think that's that's always a, a a real um a real challenge that's out there and uh, again I don't want to cast aspersions on the entire industry but the people selling this equipment have an agenda yeah and there sometimes the the questions that need to be asked from from an informed purchaser aren't you know can the unit fit somewhere uh, they're probably more about 
should the unit go there or, or, or would it be better if it was located somewhere else yeah. in terms of the, um, the ongoing cost of operation of the unit? I mean, the the reverse example of a lot of this, and you know, go to, go to what we know. Um, in my past career, I, I was responsible for electricity supply to all of Western Sydney, and uh, the combined effect of the climate there, urban heat soak, um, and a, a summer peaking network. I'm not demonising air conditioning loads; they're a, they're a necessity yep. in that sort of climate, but we could predict with with absolute certainty when the summer peak was going to occur and it was when you got the third day in a row at or above 40 degrees celsius and it's a working weekday Mm -hmm. and it's the third day in a row because what happens after the third day is people stop turning off their air conditioner it's cool pet syndrome we used to call it (laughs) people stop turning off their air conditioner when they leave for work in the morning because they've come home two days to an oven yep. in terms of the outside and inside temperature and they leave it running and then the combined effect of that in terms of heat soak means all of these air conditioners virtually stop cycling right. on and off and they're just running, again, technical electrical term here, flat knacker <laughs> and you get streets and streets and streets of these air conditioners right. all blazing away at once. And, and Fido and Fifi are, are, are lovely in, in comfort mm. inside the house at home, the cool pets. Uh, but the combined effect of that, that's what will give you your summer peak. Yeah. Um, all day, every day, third, uh, third hot day in a row, all the time. But we're seeing less of that now with all of the rooftop solar, you know, less in the day. So that, that peak will day, come now in the when people get home. still of an evening. Yeah. Still of an evening. You, this is the, the big challenge with solar at the moment is the diurnal window shuts, the mm-hmm. sun goes down just as um, the demand goes up. Yep. Everyone comes home and puts on the kettle. and puts The on kettle the- and the <laughs> oven and the AC and the Netflix and, the yep. <laughs> and you name it. Exactly. Yep. Um, so... What's your advice to people who who do go to say you know their long term electrician electrician and say you know I want to put in this induction cooktop or I want to put in this mm-hmm. um, heat pump hot water system and they get the old and and I, like you say I'm not I'm not I'm having a go at, at any trade group of trades people at all but uh, I I personally don't like change. <laughs> <laughs> struggle enough. with it's it. It's a human trait. I, yeah. I try, but uh, but yes, in Australia we do have that reputation of you know it's a big job, it's going to be expensive. Yeah. You're much better off doing this and that. And you know what what can you say? How can you arm yourself to that? Because it can be very easy to be talked out of things um, if you don't know what to say and you don't know uh, you know exactly why it is that you want this this appliance. Exactly. So. Uh, so a few generalist tips is you know as best I can give them. Given everybody's individual yeah. circumstance is going to be difficult. First of all, if you're in a very old home, brace yourself. Right. Um, this is this is never going to be cheap. It's the same as if you wanted to replace the entire kitchen or bathroom or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are going down the path of a large scale renovation, then boots and all, upgrade your switchboard while you're there. Right. That'd be to a modern standard switchboard. In many cases, that will sort of be happening anyway. But if it's not, ask the question of your builder and your electrician and build it into that. But it doesn't um, always need to be three-phase. 
But it doesn't always need to be three-phase, no. Ask questions around that, absolutely. Um, the, the second thing I'd say is I think a lot of these community groups, now, look, I, I, I'm not going to come out as... I'm, I'm happy to say that I think sometimes, you know, Facebook is a, is a shouting match for people who shouldn't have an opportunity to shout mm-hmm. about anything. But having said that, there are a lot of very good community groups and community forums and those sorts of things. And a lot of the time you find there'll be somebody nearby you who by definition's ho- their home will be not dissimilar to yours, who have been on this journey and they'll be able to say, oh, I used tradesperson such and such, I used company such and such, yep. and they were okay. So tap into that shared experience yep. and find somebody good. It's It'd be twee of me in the current skills shortage environment to say, oh, I'll get more than one quote or whatever. I know what it's like. If you can yeah. get someone out there to give you a quote, you've won the lottery <laughs> a lot of the time yep. in the current environment. So it's, you know, it's not helpful for me to say just get multiple quotes, but perhaps tap into some of those informal networks and local social networks to yeah. find out who's good and who's worth talking to. You'll usually find there'll be somebody who's local or semi-local who has done the right thing by enough people and that word of mouth reputation is really I, I would suggest some of the best things to tap into yep. the next piece of advice would be to sit down and as best you can work out the age of, of your existing plant um, and if you're going to be facing a, a, a chain of upgrades mm. for all of this um, just have that conversation up front with whomever you get out there, in particular your electrician, and say, well, we might be talking about the cooktop now because, you know, the, the one of God's died or reached end of life, or we might be talking about the hot water, whatever. Mm. But I'm looking down the track and over the next five years, I'm probably going to be looking at replacing this, this, this and this. What does that mean overall in terms of am I going to, what's going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back yep. perhaps in terms of, my switchboard or my home's wiring and that may mean that you know people sort of step back from the edge and go to a mostly electric home rather than an all electric one because that's the balance point for them right in their, in their circumstance yes um, and what about and electric vehicles sorry to interrupt but it, would that be one of the ones that pushes you that could definitely be a, a straw that breaks the camel's back. If you're at all thinking of electrifying your personal transport, um, home electric vehicle chargers, as they are at the moment, are still really only in the um, in the range of an induction cooktop in right. terms of the the amps that they draw, and and practically, I think that's the that's the upper limit that they'll ever be able to um, to have. I mean we'll never see the DC fast charging no. and that sorts of thing in our homes. We'd all need our own dedicated substation on the front lawn to be able to But if do you're that. trickle charging from home, that's not a problem. That's not a problem. And uh, and again, it's easy for me to say, but, you know, I, I won't make this all about me and my circumstances, but for me, um, I, I'm yet to purchase an EV, yep. but uh, not for any reason other than... A, got a couple of new cars and why do I want to replace them when they're only a couple of years old sort of thing. Yep. Um, but for me, I think the EV and the trickle charging and that sort of thing really comes into effect if there's any way that your car can be at home for some times during the day, mm. during the week, so that if you've got solar on your home, that's what's charging your vehicle. Yep. 
that takes a lot of burden off your energy bill and your energy footprint, but it's also something that's quite achievable within the limits of normal home wiring and home wiring sizes as well. Um, and not a bad match between a five to seven kilowatt solar system and a similar sized EV charging system if you if you have it. So it's, it's yeah. all about trying to balance these things for people. Yeah, and it's about sort of um, ch changing your thinking. You know, I've, I've heard um, one of our contributors to The Driven, one of our other websites, yes. um, talks about it in that way, how it's um, we need to start thinking of, of refueling, quote unquote, as a destination thing rather than an en route thing, which is what it's been for petrol cars. You know, you, you, you leave the house and think I need to fill up at, at whatever point and you factor that in, you know, the five minutes. But this is much more like, you know, say your mobile phone, you, you wouldn't be looking everywhere all day for somewhere to plug your phone in normally. You would exactly. have it charged enough that you can take it out in the day and then plug it in at night or plug it in, as you say, ideally, when the sun's shining and your solar is generating. Exactly. And if, I mean, without wanting to get into political debates around all of this, work from home is would appear to be now a thing. Mm. Notwithstanding some of the debate I see raging in the various <laughs> media at the moment. And so if, if there's a way that you can, if your vehicle only needs to be charged a couple of times a week and you can time that to be, well, that's your work from home day. So that's when your vehicle's at home during the day, yep. which is when solar's, solar's operating. And then maybe a day on the weekend or something. That's that's the right sort of uh, balance if it can be achieved. And you're, you're absolutely right, Sophie. The shift in mindset yeah. that's needed here, away from uh, refueling as something I quickly do on the way to or from some other activity, and it becomes more something that you either it happens in the background. do in preparation yeah. or you do at the destination yeah. <laughs> that you're going to and you then just it makes perfect sense have your dinner while your car is charging you know exactly at, at, at a restaurant but yeah I, I think in terms of electrification it's a lot similar like i know that when i had my solar installed i even being a person who doesn't love change really embraced you know trying to shift my my usage of of load into the times where the, the sun was shining yes. and you know it, it's it's easy for me to say that because i do work from home and have done for many years but um you know nowadays we have the technology where we can actually do that even if we're not working from home we can we can do all sorts of things and we shouldn't be afraid to sort of embrace that um exactly set the timer on your dishwasher yep. set the timer on your washing machine Put the load in by all means of a morning and that, but set the timer to start in a couple of hours from now. Same with your dishwasher or whatever. Yep. Go off and live your life. And then once you know, well, the sun's come up and the solar's doing what solar does, creating all those lovely green electrons, now the dishwasher kicks in. Now the washing machine yep. kicks in and you use that energy on your side of the meter. That's always the, yep. the best way to do it. And that takes away that sort of... You know, I mean, sometimes that anxiety you have of, oh, my God, I've got to put the dishwasher on again, you know, and <laughs> you hear the sound of it. It's like you with your dryer. You sort of think, oh, geez. Yeah, but, uh, you growl at it. <laughs> yeah. And for those who don't have solar even, the middle of the day is, you know, we, there's times where we get, you know, negative prices quite often yes. now. Yes, energy is basically free in Australia yeah. in large parts of the NEM over substantial parts of the year through that middle of the day period. Yes, so even the, without solar, 
it, it really pays to start thinking in that way, doesn't it? Correct, correct. The old, the old times where off-peak was the middle of the night are gone. Mm. The off-peak now is actually through the middle of the day, in the, especially the sun's, the sun's doing half its job then it's definitely when, as you say, energy's, energy's at its cheapest. And I mean, that's, that's the whole challenge as to why prices have gone up at the moment, is our over-reliance uh, now with coal retiring on gas mm. um, and the structure of the East Coast gas network, which doesn't have a price cap or a domestic reserve in place until recent government interventions, um, just bleeds across the war profiteering pricing globally yep. that's occurring with natural gas bleeds across into all of our electricity bills. And that's the fundamental reason why they've gone up recently yeah. is our reliance on gas once the sun goes down. Mm. And and that sort of doesn't seem like it's going to change uh, very quickly at all. We need, we need a lot more storage. Mm. And unfortunately, the debate on storage tends to polarise to the, you know, big batteries on the grid or, or pumped hydro or something or behind the meter batteries, you know, mm. home batteries. And the reality is we need substantial storage of varying durations at every level yeah. of the electricity grid. It's, it's, not a, it's, it's an and situation, mm. not an or. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a bit too complicated and difficult to get in a three-second soundbite, <laughs> but that's the reality. No, well, actually, we've been talking about that a bit on um, Solar Insiders. I spoke to, um, to PowerCore... Um, last week about this very or not last week last fortnight ago yes. about this very sort of thing you know that mm. we're kind of ignoring the distribution level um storage piece which is actually going to be quite important i think it's the key to unlocking things the, the reality is while we've got 20 gigawatts of solar on our homes you're never going to power the cbd of melbourne or sydney or, or the steelworks of port kembla mm. from solar on homes purely because of the physics yep you can't get that amount of energy through the skinny little wires that connect all of those homes to the grid, back upstream in the grid and then back downstream to where it's needed. Mm. So the reality is unless we start as a nation to really focus on and embrace what I, what I call small grid type thinking in how the grid operates, more distributed models yep. of thinking, community batteries are one of the key technologies to unlock that. Mm. Um, unless we start embracing that, we, we're fast approaching the point where we're going to be wasting a lot of the solar on our homes. Yes. Last year, would you, even with one third of homes having solar on it now in Australia, last year the, um, the domestic sector generated 57% of the energy that it used from solar panels mm. on the roofs of homes. So, and, that, and that's net of all that great behind the meter consumption that you and I were talking yes. about earlier because <laughs> we can't see that no. because it doesn't go through the meter. Um, so the real number of, you know, how much energy are we actually generating that we use is probably more like about 65% wow. or something. Yeah. And we run the very real danger of, of losing the advantage of that unless we really start going hard at uh, that medium scale grid side of the meter storage in streets and in suburbs yep. to to recycle that energy once the sun goes down mm. um, the effect that that could have on pricing for customers would be quite frankly more sustainable and more substantial than any amount of short-term sugar rush subsidies yes just quietly agreed um and 
we love small grid thinking on uh, One Step Off the Grid and Solar Insiders. So I feel like Terrific. I could talk to you for hours <laughs> and we will have to we will have to organise another podcast time because Happy I feel to. like we've Happy just scratched to. the surface. But just to finish up, if I could just quickly take you back into small, smaller uh, view um, yes. to what it was that made you go all electric all those years ago. Because in New South Wales... Um, it's not, there is a mm-hmm. particular, there's a pretty high gas connection rate, isn't there? Or am I getting yes, that wrong? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so I'm just no, interested to hear what, what was your journey? Right. I, I, a combination of factors. Uh, first of all, I'm an electrical engineer and licensed electrician. Yep. And in your comment, we don't like change mm. and we stick to what we know as a species. Yep. And so that's what I knew. So that's the first sort of and probably one of the main reasons. The the second reason, um, the, the second the second reason is, I've got to phrase this the right way because people can take it the wrong way. But the, for me, the second reason was safety. Yeah. I didn't have children at the time, and I'm not talking safety in terms of oh, I think your house is going to blow up if you have a gas main into it. No. Clearly, if that was the case, there'd be a lot more houses blowing up than there, yes. than are at the moment. That's not what I mean. For me, um, you know, I grew up through the 70s, um, he said, showing his age, and 80s. Mm. And there were still, you know, horrible tales of of children being horrifically burnt from falling into um, bar heaters, kerosene heaters, gas gas heaters and those sorts of things. Little pyjamas catching a light, all things that make terribly upsetting. And my view was quite simply, if I I created an all-electric house that in particular was heated and cooled by reverse cycle air conditioning, then warm air comes out of a vent in the ceiling mm. and my children, when they came along later, mm. um, would be perfectly safe. I love it. You were baby-proofing. Um, it, was, it was early baby-proofing, <laughs> absolutely. So there was, there was that. Mm. And there was also, um, and this relates, I think, to the first thing, A, the, the personal you stick to what you know or whatever, but the second one was I don't ever have to get a tradie in. Ah, in DIY. I can do it myself. Yep. Okay. That makes um, legally, sense. as yep. a licensed electrician, <laughs> ticketed, um, and I'm ticketed. I can do everything. And the third reason, I think, or fourth reason, I think, as I'm counting those up, it w- it actually was cost. Yeah. And for me, the upfront cost of having two grid connections, mm. and then having two sets of appliances, etc., uh, etc., et just didn't make sense to me. To me, it was pick one and run and run with it, even if on an individual appliance basis, for example, say hot water or whatever, it was a bit suboptimal mm. in terms of energy. For me, the overall footprint of having one connection, one, one energy source, one technology, for me, just made too much sense. And so it turns out I didn't realise I was visionary or whatever at the time. time. Yeah. <laughs> but those that was my thinking. Safety, yep. stick to what I know, yes, but cost it was cheaper for me to go all electric at the time than to put both connections on yeah and i think that's what we want people to think now with greenfield development definitely is is that yeah like you say one envelope one source one connection to the grid um yeah and then and then everything is highly energy efficient and smart and you can control it 
and exactly. you know to add to the health issues there are now concerns about about the pollution that that gas can release in homes as well so nitrous oxides yeah. fluid versus unfluid heating all of these sorts of yes. things I, i'm no expert on that no. but all i know is i avoided it completely you did have warm air come out of a vent in the ceiling happy days you were definitely ahead of your time and now we are out of time <laughs> so <laughs> of course thank you so so much for your time um ty it's been really really wonderful to to sort of pick your brain on this and to to learn a few th i've certainly learned a few things um for myself i still have a gas stove so that's that's my my job ahead of me um but yeah it doesn't make it doesn't make you a bad person no. it's just the way that it is <laughs> I, uh, yes it's it's something that i have to think of but uh yes we would love to speak to you in the future so please uh keep us in mind and uh yeah thank you again and Thank you so much. Look, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Uh, happy to come back on any time. Happy to chat. And uh, it's uh, hopefully what we've spoken about. Hopefully somebody will find some small part of my blatherings useful. Thank you very <laughs> I'm much. I'm sure they will, All, even despite your technical terms. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Ty. See you. Thanks, Sophie. Bye. And that was uh, Ty Christopher, not Ty Christopher, Ty Christopher from the University of Wollongong um, talking to Sophie. Um, look, it's um, it's a fascinating issue. Um, lots of questions, lots of issues to be resolved. And some of these are things that we're going to be getting into um, in detail over the next six months. There's a whole six month um, special uh, project that we're getting onto decarbonisation. So I'm really looking forward to that series. And um, as Ty explains, um, you know, it's um, there's a few things to be done. There are, and I think you know it's a fantastic subject to do a deep dive on um, because it just, I mean, firstly because also as as Ty says, each house is sort of a different scenario, and not so much for greenfield, but. Um, for retrofitting, absolutely. Um, so there, there's a lot to take in. There's a lot to talk about. Um, and, you know, I think what I what we spoke about is there is a still a bit of scepticism out there as well. And no thanks to some of the lobbying efforts of certain groups that will remain unnamed. Um, I don't think they should remain unnamed at all. In fact, <laughs> I'm going to call them as the gas industry groups and they're threatening to take away your barbecue or the warning that you might lose your barbecue. The great Aussie barbie, barbies is about to be stolen from under your eyes. So you, you better padlock it and strap it down on the back, on the back veranda, um, <laughs> yeah. wherever it is. Um, although in reality, that's actually not going to happen. But, not not um, going to happen still, at all. Yeah. No, yeah. And, and that's the thing. I think um, it just is there's a bit of misinformation out there um, you know, and, and I think there's certainly some big costs and especially, you know, if you've got an old house and, but uh, that, that sort of, as, as we discussed in the podcast, that's something that um, happens with old houses anyway. Yeah. Uh, if you need to change anything, it's going to be costly. Yeah, well, look, we're going to be diving into um, many of these issues and with um, um, Anne Delaney, um, who's been doing this little special um um, series has been sort of talking to energy experts in Australia and around the world and just got some fascinating things lined up so um, really looking forward to that um, and it's an essential thing to counter that disinformation yes. I mean who knew that there was disinformation in the energy and climate space I can't believe <laughs> it never, never happened before <laughs> <laughs> so, um, let's move on to some other news around the place look some really interesting stories actually around um, this week um, the first one I thought was interesting was an announcement by the WA government and its state-owned uh, utility Synergy to give free 
electricity during the day from 9 o'clock to 3 p.m. to struggling households. Mm. Um, and this just seems to be an absolutely fantastic use for all the excess solar that's being produced. Um, um, well, not just in Western Australia, but Western Australia being an isolated grid has a particular problem. Uh, they're actually investing in a whole bunch of big batteries to try and soak up some of that solar and sort of move that solar to the evening things. But these are just really strikes me as a really good idea. There is so much um, that we're sort of gonna, are gonna be throwing away or not using. Why not give it to people who are struggling it just seems to be a bit of a no-brainer, but just um, a, a bit of a leap into sensible thinking uh, mm. about what to do with um, with renewables. Sensible and consumer-focused, which is what everyone likes to say that they do. <laughs> but, That's right. Uh... They, they, they say, yes, we're, we're extremely consumer-focused, mm. um, and here's mm. your bill, which is rising 38%. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes, and here are some crazy regulations that you'll never be able to get your head around, but hey... Um, no, it, it is. It's a really promising sign that, um, yeah, that, that the utilities are starting to think in this way. They're starting to think, well, we have to look after hardship customers. We have to solve the problem of all this solar coming on the grid during the middle of the day, between 9 and 3, as it happens. Um, ooh, look what we can do with it. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really good idea and it's, a, it's that also addressing that sort of um, solar democracy as well for people who are the hardship customers are very unlikely to have their own solar so you know this is a great way to share it absolutely absolutely and there was another interesting development too and this is it's also using sort of australian technology although this particular scheme isn't happening in australia it's happening in new zealand um it's um using sort of um software to help with um solar for renters um you better tell me a bit more about that detail yeah. of that project well it's sort it has happened in australia as well and as, as you said it's, it's australian it's melbourne based technology um the company's loom energy and their SolShare technology is, has just found a way to put this software and hardware behind the meter that basically shares a solar system between tenants. So it solves this problem of how do we get solar for apartments um, and it also, um, as, as New Zealand has worked out this year, works out the problem of how do we get solar for people who are doing it tough. So this particular project... Um, they used the Illum technology on a new building, which they've built to really high energy efficiency standards, which is great. Um, it has 20 apartments within it's a street three story building. And yeah, they've put two soul share units, um, a few inverters, I think 34 kilowatts of solar and, and they're sharing it between the apartments and they're saying it's gonna cut the bills for these people um, by up to $400 a year, which is fantastic. Yeah, well, that's good to see. That's good to see. Um, look, and a couple of other interesting things too, um, just affecting sort of solar and um, and the solar installation community is um, the Australian Energy Market Operators report. They've updated their engineering requirements to reach 100% renewables instantaneous, which will probably happen within a couple of years. Um, really interesting stuff. I mean, you know, we're talking about things which you know many people thought, used to say was completely 
not possible, and some people probably still do say it's not possible to have 100% renewables in the grid and sort of you know, to get rid of fossil fuel generation. We're only talking about sort of five-minute, half-hour periods, but um, AEMO is sort of um, working out what it needs to do, and um, it's in its updated engineering report, it's actually sort of focused on sort of strict application of inverter standards. Um, it has inverter standards, but it wants to make sure that um, the inverter settings are correct and uh, strongly adhered to. Mm. Uh, so it's um, that's an important thing. Um, and it's also having a look at small solar farms. Now, one of the things that's sort of been disappearing under the radar a bit is sort of little little five megawatt solar farms. They've been sort of scattered um, yep. sort of around the grid. Um, one of the reasons they are sized that way is because they don't have to sort of conform to any of the sort of strict connection issues that um, you know, imposed on bigger solar farms. So mm. there's so many of them now. I think AEM is a bit worried about what happens if there's a grid disturbances. Do they stay on the grid? Do they disappear? How do they manage that? So you probably a bit of a heads up there. There's, there's probably going to be more. There's probably going to be more discipline around the inverter settings on on, on those solar projects as yeah, well. Yeah, which might be a few community projects as well. Which, um, yeah. But um, yeah. I think, you know, from what I've seen, I know that some of the one, the five megawatt um, solar farms in South Australia have been adding storage um, straight away, um, you know, and that for the same reason that they build it small, it's, it's great because they can also store the energy more easily and with a smaller sort of battery. Um, so, you know, I don't know how much AMO has to worry about that, but... I think AMO yeah, worries. That's it, what well, it does. it does worry, and it's paid to worry because it's paid to keep the lights yeah, on, um, yeah. which is fair enough. It's probably not about whether they're storing the energy, to be fair. It's probably about whether the inverter settings are correct and it doesn't just sort if of something trip off. goes wrong. Yes, yeah. exactly. So that's what they're worried about. I mean, they're always worried about... And that's the funny thing about this whole sort of um, um, transition and, and one of the big things about rooftop solar. Now, rooftop solar in places like South Australia is accounting for all the power in South Australia, all the domestic demand. Mm. That's not really the issue. That's not really what concerns AEMO. What concerns AEMO is that what if something really bizarre happens uh, a disturbance to the grid and it just trips off all those inverters or something else happens how does it control that how does it know how much it's going to lose how much does it know how much it will lose and that's how why it's it pushing again exactly mm. exactly so that's why it's sort of you know pushing you know it sort of describes this in various ways about visibility over the market and mm. orchestration and stuff like that and it's imposed a whole bunch of sort of strict inverter standards in south australia we've seen um yeah. we've just seen the launch of dynamic exports and yes. so maybe you can talk a bit about that well that was that's a you know that's a big moment um and it, again it just it feels for me like it, this has been coming for a while which is probably because i you know we've been following it closely but it does feel a bit like the networks and AMO have been like, you know, oh, we'd really like you to have your inverter set this way. And then it's sort of, well, we really are going to have to insist that you have your inverter set this way. And then it's like, okay, now it's a rule. It's a rule. It's a bit like my, my parenting um, could probably be a bit firmer from the start and, and set sort of, but the problem is it's all evolving. But anyway, in South Australia, they're definitely leading the pack and um, they've finally got in place after sort of trials and dry runs they've they have this dynamic exports which is means that anyone who installs a new system um, in South Australia has to comply with these inverter standards where they have to you know they have to be able to talk to the to the market that you know they need a third party person who can control it and 
the, that way they can respond to market signals. And it's not about, um, you know, them taking the power away from you and being able to shut your system off or anything. It's actually about, as you say, trying to manage fluctuations on the grid, trying to keep the grid stable. Um, and also the upside for customers is that it means that um, rather than having your export to the grid limited to a strict number, which is usually about five kilowatts, um, it's it can be dynamic. So what they've found is that people can basically export really up to 10 kilowatts most of the time um, under this new sort of regime, if you want to call it that. And it's actually, you know, for better, I mean, feed-in tariffs aren't amazing, so you're not going to ever get rich from it. But, you know, it just means that your solar is going to go to the grid rather than just be spilled or wasted. And that that then becomes an issue for... Absolutely, yes. Yeah. And and as we've seen that, um, Rooftop Solid's done a wonderful job in basically kicking out coal and sort of, you know, forcing the closure of all the... Um, Fantastic on the Pentagon. And, and, and that's the wonderful thing about electrification, actually, because it yeah. talks about those internal appliances and will basically be the next stage of how households, having already sort of set the, set the ball in motion to kick out coal, can now kick out gas. So I just think that's an important thing to underline also, just for the, um, for the power of what households can do with the rooftop solar and the electrification and in the in, in the meantime, we'll just struggle to get around this concept of sort of inverter controls over parenting and children and things like that. So switching on, <laughs> switching off. It does sound, yeah. it does sound enticing, though. Um, <laughs> anyway, look, um, thanks very much, Sophie. Um, thanks to Ty uh, Christopher from the University of Wollongong for um, his wonderful discussion about electrification. Once again, please do look out for our new series, which starts next week. A whole bunch of fantastic podcasts, uh, explainers and a whole bunch of things. So that's, um, we hope that people uh, really respond to that. Um, thanks, of course, to our sponsors. And uh, we'll be back with another episode of the Solar Insiders podcast in a fortnight's time. Goodbye for now. Solar Insiders was brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solar design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly costs and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals. Solar Insiders is also brought to you by Nextracker, delivering some of the highest-performing solar assets in the country. Like a sunflower follows the sun, Nextracker's market-leading solar solutions deliver optimal return on investment for utility solar farms in Australia. Check out their flagship NX Horizon Smart Solar Tracker, their intelligent optimization software, and the industry's most advanced terrain-following solar tracking technology, NX Horizon XTR.